Let's look at Luke chapter 10. You know, the people who, whom God used to write the gospel accounts, as well as the letters in the New Testament, whatever it may be, uh, they, they had style about them. They had a certain way. You know, the Gospel of John doesn't read like Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And uh, they had a purpose in doing it. John devoted nearly half of his Gospel account, really, yeah, it was almost half of it, just to the last few hours that Jesus was here before he was, uh, before he was crucified. Luke had a way of writing all his own. Luke was, was kind of one of these guys that would kind of take notes and say, this is how this turned out. And really, starting in, in about chapter, well, really at the end of chapter 9, we have this beginning of what some people call a travel narrative, which was a, th a style of writing that people would have. Because whenever you get into toward the end of chapter 9, we see this. It says, in verse 51 of chapter 9, it says, When the days drew near for him, that is Jesus, to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem, and he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered the village of the Samaritans to make preparation for him. So what you see from this point on is what we call this travel narrative. Jesus was making his last trip to Jerusalem. Now, we don't know for sure how many times he went there. There's a lot of things about what Jesus did while he was among us that we don't know. All we get is just these little pieces here and there in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John of what he did. He saw a lot more people, went to a lot more places, and did a lot more things than what we have any accounts of. We have what we need. Uh, we, we wish that we had everything, don't we? But anyway, and so what we have here in Luke is what we call this travel narrative. I thought we would spend some time with this for a few Sundays. We probably will never get through the whole thing, I doubt it. And, uh, but we're going to do what we can. Because in this travel narrative, we see some of the things that are just found exclusively in Luke about Jesus' meeting with Zacchaeus. Uh, some of the parables that stick out in people's minds the most, like the parable of the prodigal son, we find it all in here. And so this is a, this is a thing that, I don't know, I enjoy it. Of course, I have a hard time staying away from the Gospels for very long. But anyway, let me read here, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 10. It says, After this the Lord appointed seventy others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest uh, to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I'm sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, Peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. And whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick. <clears throat> In, in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. 
Now woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. The one who hears you hears me. The one who rejects you rejects me. And the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. Now, <clears throat> my sermon has 10 points this morning. I'm not joking. And so I doubt that we're going to finish this, but we're just going to do the best we can, okay? You know, for several years, at, at, uh, whenever I was at uh, First Baptist Mount Enterprise, uh, we would have, there would, we would invite a group from the Baptist Student Ministry, or what we used to call the Baptist Student Union, Stephen F. Austin, to come. And they would come and talk to us about a mission trip they were going to take. Uh, of course, one of the things we told them said, if you'll come, we'll take up a special offering to help you finance the mission trip. But it also came with this. You had to come back and tell us what you did. And we were always glad to hear them. And I always appreciated these young men and women getting up and telling us about the things that they got to do. I know uh, they talked about once, but quite often they would go to South Padre Island for spring break. Oh, mercy. And, uh, you know the only reasons they go, people go down there for spring break, you know, and just part of it has to do with getting drunk. Anyway, and what they would do was that they ha would have a van and they would pick up these spring break partiers that were so drunk that they, could, they couldn't hold on, they couldn't lie on the ground without holding on. And uh, they'd pick them up and they'd take them to their hotel room and kept them off the streets. They said they picked up one young man, and he was probably 19 or 20 years old, you know, he wasn't even old enough to buy his own cigarettes. And so they, and he was sick, and he was throwing up, and he was just in, in a bad, bad way. And they got him in the van, and they said, why did you come to South Padre Island? He said, to have fun. They said, are you having fun? And he said, no, I'm not. <laughs> they told him about the Lord, because that was their main emphasis one time they came and they told us that their mission trip, they were going to take a mission trip, and it wasn't going to be to South Padre Island. It was going to be in the 8th Ward in Houston. And if any of you know where that is, that's a pretty tough part of town. You don't really want to be there. And they, they came and they told us, that's where we're going. Now I'm telling you something. I know that looks can be deceiving, but some of those young men and women that were going, I mean, it looked like they had never even heard of shoplifting as a crime. You know, it's just these are the most innocent looking people in the world. And they were going down and, and going out and they were going to be witnessing on some of the tough streets in Houston. I mean, and there was one guy that was in our church and he was a truck driver. And you could tell by looking at him, he had seen the rough side of life more than he had seen the good side of life. And he was telling me, he said, they're going out there to the 8th Ward. He said, they don't even need to be going over there. That's a dangerous place, and someone needs to tell them about it. And I said, we expect you to come back and give us a report. And they did. They went to a place where you didn't want to get out of your car at night and walk down the sidewalks. But they got to tell people about the Lord. And probably there were some people who probably never had anyone tell them about the Lord. And by the way, they all came back in one piece, and none of them was the worst for wear. Sometimes whenever we go doing what Jesus wants us to do, we put ourselves in harm's way. Sometimes it's not easy to follow him. Sometimes it's not easy to do the things that we're supposed to do. Sometimes it's not pleasant. 
like being in the van with a guy that really partied too hard. But Jesus sends his disciples out. Now, in here we see that he appointed 70. Some of your Bibles may say 72. And if you have any question about why that's different, I'll talk to you about it after this is over with. But he picked out 70 people and sent them out on a mission trip together. Now, some of you say, well, my Bible said somewhere in my Bible, it said that he, he sent 12. Yes. And if you want to read that account in Luke as well, it's in chapter 9. Okay. Jesus probably had him go on more than one mission trip, and he had more disciples than just 12. Now, whenever we think talk about the 12, we're talking about apostles. When, but Jesus, a disciple, didn't have to be a, an apostle. Every apostle was a disciple, but not every disciple was an apostle. But anyway, he was going to send them out and uh, into this field of service. Now, the thing about this idea of 70, we think that probably there's a little bit of symbolism involved in that particular number. And I think this makes a whole lot of sense right here. Some people will say that, well, the 70, that refers to the number of men who translated the Hebrew Bible into Greek and came up with the thing that they call the Septuagint. Well, that sounds real sweet and good, but I really don't think that's it. There's another idea in which they would say that the 70 would refer to the 70 elders that, that accompanied Moses to the mountain. But you know what really makes sense is this. In Jewish thought, Genesis chapter 10 listed the 70 Gentile nations. That makes sense right here. Because what Jesus is teaching them about is taking out, taking the message, taking the good news. And ultimately, it needs to be taken to every Gentile, every nation, every race, every creed, every color. And that's what it's all about. Matter of fact, if you were to look in the book of Revelation, we can read this about the time whenever there was the scroll and, and John was saying in his dream, well, you know, he heard, heard it said, you know, who's worthy to open the, open the seals and deal with the scroll. And let's see if I can find it right here. Anyway, it says this, there was a, a new song that was sung by the saints. It says, worthy are you, speaking to Jesus, to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. It was not, it was, this was not a message just for the Jews, but this was for everyone. No matter what language you spoke, no matter what you looked like, no matter where you came from, no matter what nation you were from. It's, it's really odd that, uh, that some people have decided to claim exclusive rights on God's grace. Now you've probably heard this, but Hudson Taylor, I believe, he was kind of considered the, the father of modern day foreign missions. He got up and preached before a large group of ministers. He had it on his heart that they needed to start spreading the gospel to other places besides just where, where they live in the English-speaking world. And he was, he was holding forth on the subject. He was a young man, and an older preacher said, Young man, sit down. If God wants to save the heathen, he will do it without your help or mine. I don't really think that that was on God's mind. Okay? That's not the way it works. And you know, and you can say, well, that was just old stuff. But you know what? There's still people doing the very same thing now. I've heard of people say, well, I'm not going to go off on this mission trip and tell these people about the Lord. You know, I don't want to, I don't want to be around those kind of people. I mean, there are still some churches around that do not welcome certain people unless they're white. And I thought that that was gone a long time ago, but I found out that it didn't. That just doesn't make any sense to me. 
And there's no way that we can stand before Jesus and give a good answer for that. You know, we have a vast, vast field of service. And, uh, and, it's, uh, <clears throat> and, and it's for everybody. And the gospel's for everybody. Why? Because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That, that we have a common problem and there is one common and there's only one common way of dealing with the problem. It's the death of Jesus Christ and his resurrection. Another thing is he sent them out two by two. And so we see this idea of the vast field of service. And then now we see this need for fellowship and companionship and partnership. You know, and this is not the only time we see this idea of pairs going on. One of them is we, we can think of this. Moses had his errand. Uh, Joshua, whenever he was going to spy out Jer uh, Jericho, he sent two spies, not just one. Elisha had his aide Gehazi. Jeremiah had his scribe, Baruch. Uh, Paul had his, had his missionary partner, Silas. Barnabas ultimately had John Mark. You know, the idea behind this is this, is you always need that, that other person that is going to be there to help you. We need the encouragement of another person whenever we get discouraged. There's times whenever you're doing something for the Lord and you're putting everything you've got into it and you feel like maybe what you ought to do is just punt on first down and get away from everything. And, 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 and you need someone that is there to help you look at things realistically and help you turn your, your, your thoughts back to the Lord and be encouraged. We need that, that partner around that is the cool-headed person whenever we get angry. And uh, I, I don't know whether you've ever needed someone to cool you off a little bit, but there have been some times that I've needed that. And I've always appreciated those kind of people. We need someone, that partner around, that is going to give us the right example and show us how that we're supposed to do things. I would imagine that you've had people like that that taught you this is the way you're supposed to do things, or in church, this is the way that you deal with issues like this. We all need that. And the Bible tells us that this is what we need. In Ecclesiastes chapter 4, it says, Two are better than one. For if either of them falls, the one will lift up his companion. If two lie down together, they keep warm. But how can one be warm alone? If one can, if one can overpower who, who is alone, him who is alone, two can resist him. A cord of three strands is not easily broken. We need that partner. We need that person to help us. Don't ever think that you're going to do your best by being the Lone Ranger. Here's another thing we see is that we have an overwhelming task. Well, one of the reasons that tax that task is so overwhelming is because our field is the world and uh, and we're outnumbered greatly uh, but understand this the field is God's it's not ours his word is the seed that is sown in that field God is the one that produces the growth and the harvest is his it's not ours now, I want you to think about this. The field belongs to God. The harvest belongs to God. Sometimes we get this mixed up just a little bit, don't we? Sometimes, and you'll hear people say this, well, this is my church. Okay. It's okay if we understand what we mean by saying this is my church. I can say that Texas is my state. Texas is my home. Now, it doesn't mean that I own Texas. You know, now Dolph Briscoe nearly owned Texas, but I don't. But what I mean by that is that 
you know, I'm a part of Texas. Texas is the state that I'm a part of. Whenever we say this is my church, what we should be meaning is this, I belong to that church. I'm a part of that church. However, there are times whenever some people forget that the harvest is God's and the field is God's. And they begin to say my church, meaning this is mine, I own it. And we're going to do things my way. Well, understand that's not the way it works in the kingdom of God, okay? And so we have this overwhelming task. And, and then our job in, in this field is to help with the reaping. And we can do that with God's strength. And particularly, we are supposed to pray. Notice that he says, pray the Lord of the harvest, that he will send more workers out there into the field to reap. Now, I know y'all are praying people. I know that. But that's always supposed to be an emphasis in what we do. You know, in one of the churches where I served, you know, it was like some places where I've been before. You know, it was kind of a, a, the Baptists were a, a very small minority in that area. And, uh, and then there was one young man that he came to serve another church of another denomination. And, you know, he was kind of struggling along. They were, you know, we were both small churches. And I was taking him with me to make hospital visits one day. And he was saying, what do you do to get members in your church? And I told him the truth. Uh, I said, well, we pray for him. And he laughed at me. I, I'm serious, he did. But we did. We, I said, no, we, we, we pray for him. I mean, every Wednesday night at that little church, we wouldn't let people sit in their pews at the end. We would make people get up and come down to the front, and we would kneel down at the front, and we would start praying. And it didn't make any difference what the needs were. We would just pray. And, but what, there was one of the things that people would pray for. I said, Lord, send us some more workers out into this field because we can't find them on our own. I mean, nobody wants to be a Baptist around here. And you know something? God would answer those prayers time and again. This is something that we ought to do. Never forget how important it is for us to be praying for God to work among us. That's what, that's, that's what we're supposed to be doing. You know, our job is not to entertain and to try to get people here by entertaining them and doing stuff like that. There's nothing wrong with having fun at church. There's nothing wrong with getting together and just pigging out on pizza at church and doing things like that. But remember something, the growth comes from God. And He is the one that we have to rely upon. And moving on. Another thing that we need to do is, is in doing work, we have to be prepared for, for difficulties. You know, I mean, it's never going to be easy to follow Jesus Christ, no matter what you're doing in following Him. Sometimes it's going to be dangerous. And that's what Jesus said. He said, I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. I mean, what you're going to be doing is not going to be a safe thing to do. It's like saying, I'm sending you out to the 8th Ward in Houston. That's what you're going to be doing. Guess what? You're going to be a minority and you're going to be in danger wherever you go. I mean, and the thing is, is that that's not the type of thing that people are looking for today. We kind of like to do things in the kingdom of God that really puts us in a good light and glorifies us. You know, the Apostle Paul, whenever he wrote to the people at Corinth, at least the second letter that we have that he wrote to the people in Corinth, he was having to deal with an issue, and some of it had to deal with false teachers. 
and teachers that would come in and they would, you know, they were full of pomp and circumstance and really full of themselves. And And Paul said, you want to see what my credentials are? Let me tell you. Here's my resume. And I'm going to read some of what he wrote then. This is in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. He said, whatever anyone else dares to boast of, I am speaking like a fool. I also dare to boast of that. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. I'm talking like a madman. With far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches, who is weak and I am not weak, who is made to fall and I am not indignant. If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. In other words, Paul couldn't draw attention to himself by saying, Look at my new Rolls Royce. (laughs) You know, look at how much people love me. Would you want to have a pastor that fits this description that Paul gives of himself? Oh yes, our pastors had been shipwrecked several times and been beaten several times, been in prison several times too. Nobody would want that because that is not what makes us look good. But listen, we're not in this to make ourselves look good and we're not in this to, to live a soft life. We are in this to glorify Christ, and we look forward to the soft life later on. In other words, Jesus is telling people, be ready to deny luxuries. If we were to look again at the end of chapter 9 here in the Gospel of Luke, <clears throat> we would see in here that uh, as he was starting to make his way to Jerusalem, three different people confronted him or talked to him. And uh, one of, and they told him, you know, we'll go with you wherever you want us to go. And uh, said so there was one man who told Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another, he said, follow me. And he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me say farewell to those at home. And Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. It's not always an easy thing to follow Jesus Christ. We have to be prepared to deny luxuries. Christ does not always call us to an easy life. You know, there was, some of you may have heard this guy, heard of this guy, he was an English writer from back in the 1700s. He was a, he, was a, he wrote on ethics and morals. He wrote, on, he wrote plays. He wrote poems. He just wrote all kinds of stuff. And he was really a highly respected man. And one time someone took him on a tour of a beautiful castle. You know, I, I, you know our friends that live in Great Britain, we've 
going to see them. They live in Wales, and Wales is proud of all the castles. Some of them are just in ruins. Some of them are, are fabulous to look at. And we had looked at several of them in, in Wales, especially one in Cardiff, and that was kind of neat. And then before we left, though, to come back home, they said, let's go into to London, and we are going to get, go to uh, where the Queen lives, Windsor Castle. We went in there, and I have never seen anything like that in my life. I mean, I've just not. I mean, it was amazing. This was something that was, I mean, it was, it was just opulence and seeing the things that we could see there. I mean, it was just amazing. Well, I know kind of a little bit about how Dr. Johnson felt after they took him on that tour of the castle and showed him all the wealth and opulence and beauty. And this is what he said. He said, these are the things that make it difficult to die. Don't carry much of the world with you because you can't carry it for long. Remember, we have a, an urgency to our mission. That's the reason Jesus said, don't stop and talk to people on the way. Remember that we have a message of peace. Remember that we need to be satisfied with what people give us and helping us. You may not have the greatest, but you accept it. You need to bring a needed message. Heal the sick. In other words, show empathy. And then also remember this. It was urgent. Tell them that the kingdom of God is here and it's time to wake up and smell the coffee. You need to learn how, and this is one of the last things here, is to deal with rejection. There are going to be times that you do the very best that you can and still, the person refuses the gospel. I know you probably get tired of hearing me talk about my relatives, but you're just going to hear it anyway. I had an Uncle Emmett Wilkins. And he was born in 1898, around where Liberty City is right now. Whenever he's 20 years old, he was saved miraculously, and he soon went into the ministry. He served in churches and started new churches. He was a Pentecostal pastor. Uh, he started new churches, especially in South Louisiana. Uh, he was the founding pastor of the first Pentecostal church in Orange, Texas. And, uh, but he, uh, he went on a foray once up north, and he became the past pastor at Cape Girardeau in Missouri back in 1928. And uh, evidently, he did not fare well there. Uh, I think he stayed there maybe a year and a half or something like that. And his son said that whenever they decided to leave Cape Girardeau and they were going to come back down to Louisiana, said they, the, the state or the whatever highway department had just built a bridge across the Mississippi River there by Cape Girardeau. He said, and uh, he said they had just finished the bridge. He said it wasn't more than 12 feet wide. And he said, as we were leaving Cape Girardeau, he said, Daddy stopped on that bridge. He got out of his car and he stomped the dirt off of his feet from Cape Girardeau and got back in the car and went on. There's going to be times you have to brush off the dirt and keep going and don't let that define how you serve. Back years ago at one place where I was serving, there was a couple that, you know, they had come to our church, they had gone to the Lutheran church, and I don't know, they were just a mess. And they really were. I mean, they just had so many things messed up. And I know that they, and, and one day I was talking to one of the Lutheran pastors, and her name was Lynn, and Lynn just asked me, she said, well, you know, have you got to talk to them yet? I said, yes. I said, I, I, I did everything I could. I said, I fired all my guns at them, and, and I still lost. 
And I'll never forget what she said. She said, you didn't lose. They did. And you have to understand it that way. Your heart may break for them, but don't consider yourself a loser because when you're doing God's work, God doesn't lose. You know, no one's ever going to accuse him of being a loser. I'm going to go and stop right there and because I've covered probably more than what you want me to. But uh, take this to heart. Because what Jesus is saying is not just to guys going on a mission trip. What Jesus is saying is to every one of us. And He calls upon people to repent, even still. And that is the message that we see in there. Matter of fact, if you look in verses 12 through 16, the last part that we read, He talks about the danger of rejecting the message. And He said, you hear the message and you reject it, what happened to Sodom is going to be minor compared to what it will happen to you. So we have to take these messages seriously. Do you know Jesus Christ? You know, have you committed your life to Him? Just because you've heard the gospel doesn't mean that you've received it. And if you have not received it, I, we urge you to consider doing so. And if you want to talk to me about it after the service, I'm going to be standing right up here just like we always do. If there's something else you need to talk to me about, you want to join this church, you feel that God's led you here, we invite you to come. And I'll be glad to talk to you after the service. Let's pray together. Now, our Father, we thank you for your words of wisdom. We thank you, Lord, for, for the, the, the help that we receive from it. Thank you, Lord, for sending your Son into this world, not only to be our Savior, but, just, Lord, just to teach us the way that we should go. Now, Lord, may your hand be upon each of us today as we leave this place. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.